Part three of the story of Yiftach. We're going to cover the tragic and disturbing story of the fate of Yiftach's daughter. Also the civil war that broke out afterwards between Ephraim and Nasha. And we'll finish off talking about the reincarnation of Yiftach and Yiftach's daughter later on and earlier on in history. First an overview of the story of the vow of, of Yiftach. We'll go back a little bit. Yiftach made an oath, he made a vow, he said, whatever greets me when I come home, whatever comes out of, my ha- out of my house home to greet me, will be sanctified and will be brought as a sacrifice. Yiftach then goes to war and in this most incredible, miraculous way, conquers the, the B'nai Amun, crushes them, conquers 20 cities, and in, in an incredible miracle from God, manages to chase away the people that have been impressing the Jewish people for 18 years. By the way, a quick side note, the Ranban on the Torah, he asks a really practical question. Yiftach conquered 20 cities, but as we mentioned in the earlier podcast, Yiftach had very clearly said that Hashem didn't let us conquer the cities of Amman. So what happened? How did Yiftach conquer these cities? And the Ramban, he answers, he says, we're not allowed to conquer those cities in a normal situation. But if they come and terrorize us, then whatever happens in the subsequent war of the Jewish people defending themselves, every, everything is, is open, open season. We could do whatever it takes. If it means we are able to conquer cities, we could conquer cities. The second they start up with us in a war or oppress us in any form of way, the rule of not attacking, attacking Amun or not taking any of their land, that falls, that falls off. Very interesting. But Yiftach won the war and he comes home and he comes to his house and the first thing or person or what he imagined would be an animal, as we'll discuss later on, his daughter came out greeting him. She was, um, she was, she had tambourines and she was dancing and Yiftach had no other children aside for her. It was, he only had one child and that was his daughter. And Yiftach was extremely distraught. He had promised God that whatever, you know, if Hashem makes the miracle and, and lets him win the war, he's going to bring that, that, uh, that he's going to sanctify that person. And now it was his daughter that came to greet him. And he insisted that he had to fulfill the vow. And we'll talk about that as well. And Yiftach's daughter submitted. He, she agreed. She said that Yiftach had made a vow. So she said, okay, you need to fulfill your vow. Whatever you swore, you need to fulfill it. But she asked her father for, for, she asked her father for like a gift. And she said, give me two months. Let me gather my friends. We'll go down to the mountains and we'll cry over my virginity. And then you'll be able to do, be able to fulfill your, fulfill your vow. And Yiftach agreed to this. Two months later, his daughter comes back and he fulfills his vow. And we'll, we'll explore the two massive opinions of what it means, you know, of him fulfilling his vow of sanctifying, sacrificing her, his daughter. And the final part of the story, this extremely tragic story, is it then became a custom among the Jewish people to mourn for Yiftach's daughter for four days every year. So there's a lot to unpack. So I just gave you the overall story, so that way we can slowly go through it and start to un- unpack exactly what it is. Now, what made Yiftach do this? The Marmalese talks about it. Many, many rabbis explain what was going on. But it's very important to understand Yiftach was not a regular person. Yiftach was exceptionally pious. He was exceptionally righteous. And his belief in God was tremendous. He was not a regular person. It's extremely important to understand that. Yiftach was not just a, a normal person 
walking down the street that we were projecting you know our feelings onto him he was a tremendous righteous man a man who had ruach a man who who moshe in the torah said i need to leave over details because yiftah has it in the future we're talking about an incredibly righteous man the only thing that yiftah had explains the mom is, is that he didn't study as much torah as he could, as he should have he believed that serving God with piety and and having incredible trust in God, that's enough. But you don't have to throw yourself into in, in your, your oneself into Torah and be as knowledgeable as Torah as, as one needs to be. Being pious and trusting in God, that's enough. And the Mamla says it's an incredible lesson for us to realize that had Yiftach known a little bit more Torah, this entire story wouldn't have happened. Yiftach would have known straight away that such a vow most certainly isn't seen through. And a person, you know, that vow is entirely disregarded because it's, it's a ridiculous vow. But he didn't know enough Torah. Because he didn't know enough Torah, the tragedy that unfolds, as we'll discuss, all unfolded had he known, had he known way more Torah. That being said, even though we're saying that Yiftach, you know, didn't study as much Torah as he could have, this, it's important to mention, at the time of Yiftach, there was another very famous person who we'll probably deal with in a later class. His name was Manoach, the father of Shimshon. And he was also described, the Arizal calls Manoach unlearned. Or people call the, the uh, Manoach as an unlearned person. He lived in the same time. And the question is, what does it mean unlearned? And the Arizal says... That unlearned means that when a person eats, there's two special kavanas, two special intentions one needs to have, and Manoach only had one. Which, when the Arizal gives that explanation, you start to realize, when we're calling people in the earlier generations, I mean, this is, this is thousands of years ago, these people, we call them unlearned, or Pinchas called Yiftach unlearned, we're not talking about what it means unloaded now. We're talking about compared to that generation, whatever it means, he was, he was considered unloaded. Not considered unloaded by any standards of today. If Yiftach was here nowadays, Yiftach would tower above everyone else. He was an incredible inspiration of a person. But compared to what he could have become, it sounds like, Yiftach could have learned more Torah. And had he known more Torah, he would have been able to avoid this terrible story that unfolded. What was his precise vow? I know we mentioned it in the earlier in the earlier podcast, but now we're going to slow down a little bit and explain what exactly what his oath was. According to the Gemara and the Medrash, and a bunch, a bunch of other locations that we'll talk about later on, Yiftach's vow was like this. He said, Whatever comes forth from the doors of my house to meet me, when I come, when I return in peace from the children of Amin, it will be Hashem's. And because it's Hashem's, I will offer it as a burnt offering. It was all really kind of one condition. No matter what walks out of the door, that will become a, a sacrifice. Now, of course, that's very problematic, as we'll talk about talk about it in a bit. But that was his vow, and he was he was he he held himself accountable to see that through. The Radak, the Rabag, the Abarbanel, the Malbim, the Mitzudas David, many of the other rabbis that explain the explanation of the verses, they they read, they read the story differently. They read his vow differently. They read his vow like this. Slightly sounds almost the same, but a slight difference. It's, they read like this: Whatever comes forth from the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Amen, still the same, it will be to Hashem, or I will, sacri- I will offer it as a burnt offering. So it's not that it will be dedicated to Hashem and 
I will then, whatever it is, make it a burnt offering, but rather it's conditional. If it's something that will be dedicated to God, it's dedicated to God. If it's something that can be offered as a burnt offering, it will be um, offered as a burnt offering. The rabbis actually bring a very a very a clear indication because, again, the words, the word that um, we're talking about, it's v'ha'ali suhu, which means, and I will bring it up, I'll offer it up. But they say, look at the Torah. It says, Make aviv imo, a man that hits his mother, his father and his mother. Doesn't, when a person gets punished for hitting the mother or the father, it doesn't mean they need to hit both the mother and the father. If they hit the mother, they hit, or they hit their father, they're killed. They don't need to do both. Only one is enough. So says the Radak and the Rabag and all the rabbis that, that say that Yiftach was not planning to offer his daughter actually up as a sacrifice, they say, look in the Torah, you see so many examples of where the word, the, the letter, the, at the beginning, doesn't mean and, but it means all. How did Yiftach actually fulfill his vow? Now, this is, this is going to be one of the most interesting divisions in opinions, where you're going to have one set of opinion that says one story, and I'm going to kind of go through the story based on that opinion, and then one other a set of opinions, they're going to kind of read the entire story entirely different. I'm going to kind of go through the story as each one of them see it, because it's just so fascinating, the differences and the similarities, and also the lessons that we can take from both of them. One quick note, just a, a complete sidetrack. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would really greatly help the 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 podcast if you could leave a review on the listening platform whatever you're listening with spotify itunes podcast or google podcast whatever it is if you could leave a review it would greatly help the the podcast let's go to the story according to medjishtan choma and the gemara and tainus seems to agree bracious rabbis seems to as well tanan also seems to have this this um story they believe that yiftach actually slaughtered and sacrificed his daughter when he came home he had promised God to sacrifice, and they read the his they read his um, vow to be actually sacrificing whatever had come through the doors. He never imagined it would be his daughter. He imagined it'd be a, he was a far, he was on a farm. He he was imagining it would be a, a cow, a sheep. Doesn't matter how expensive the cow would be, he would sacrifice it as a, as a as an offering. And he never imagined it would be his daughter. But when his daughter came, he was like, "Oh, I swore to God." So. The ton, the Tanat Veliyom and Medetachuma says like this. It says that when a person doesn't learn enough, that person won't know how to behave if they're in a vow. And the 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 Medrash says the proof of this, this is Yiftach. Yiftach made a vow. Whatever comes through my doors, and Yiftach had Yiftach had thought through his vow carefully, he would have said, wait a second, what if a, a pig comes out? What if a camel comes out? What if a dog comes out? And because he hadn't actually thought through his vow correctly, Hashem became very upset. Hashem said, why are you just saying vows without without thinking through them properly? And the people need to be extremely careful about what they say. Again, an incredible lesson about the power of our speech and how careful we have to be about what we say. And Hashem said, Yiftach, because you weren't careful about how the way that you spoke, I'm going to make it that your daughter's going to be the one that comes out to greet you, and you're going to have this incredible, disastrous story that happens. Now the question is, and the, the Medrash asks this, wait a second, but Pinchas is alive. Pinchas was still alive. Pinchas earlier on had told the Jewish people the message of Hashem. Pinchas was very much alive. Why couldn't he have come and annulled the vow? Now the, 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 the laws of vows and annulling vows are quite complex, but here's the 
basic premise of it. If someone makes a vow that they're going to do something, they could go to a rabbi, and the rabbi will start to analyze their mindset when they said the vow. It's not just the words they said, but it's their intention they had when they said the vow. And if the rabbis could find what we call a doorway of regret, for example, in the vow, where what they said, the, the context was entirely out of place, that becomes a loophole to get them out of the vow, because the vow wasn't really something that they said and meant to do, because... The conditions weren't as they saw them. For example, a very classic example the Raman brings down. Let's say someone was preparing a meal and he sees a group of people approaching him. And he's like, oh no, I have this meal and they're just going to come and they're going to they're gonna eat up all my food. And he says, you know what, best thing I could do is I'm going to make a vow that those people, are, I forbid them from enjoying, from enjoying for my meal. Fantastic. And as the group comes closer, he notices that among the groups, his father. Now, he, had he known his father was in that group, he would have never made the, that, that vow. In such a situation, you could go to the rabbis and tell the rabbis, listen, this is a scenario. I never imagined my father was there. Had I known my father was there, I would have never made the vow. And the rabbis will tell him, and again, there's a lot more nuanced and complex than that, but this is a general premise of how the loopholes in vows work. The rabbis will tell him, listen, you never imagined your father being in that group. Had you known, you would have never made the vow. Therefore, the vow's not a proper vow. So, Pinch, um, Yiftach, who was, wasn't as great of a Torah scholar as he could have been, could have gone to Pinchas, who was the high priest, who was an incredible sage, a sage of all time, and one of the, literally one of the givers of the, of the Torah. Our tradition of the Torah literally passes through Pinchas, and he could have told Pinchas, listen, you're a great rabbi, this is my scenario, help me out, tell me, what, tell me how to get out of this. And Pinchas in a second could have got Yiftach out of this situation. Yiftach had not at all meant to sa- sacrifice his daughter. He had imagined it being a farm animal, a cow, a sheep, a goat, something, not his daughter. And Pinchas would have told him, you're completely permissible to not bring your daughter as a, as a sacrifice. And as we'll talk about later on, there, there are halakhic things that he could have done. We'll talk about that. But the point is, Pinchas could have definitely got him out of sacrificing, slaughtering and sacrificing his daughter. Pinchas would have definitely instructed him, this is absolutely not within Torah rules and Torah permissibility in the slightest, and entirely got him off the hook. So why? what happened? Pinchas said... Usually, the high priest would go to the leader of the, gen- or the, the leader of the Jewish people, because the leader of the Jewish people is the most honorable, respectable person among the Jewish people. Usually, that's the way it works. The high priest is underneath the king, underneath the ruler. But Pinchas said to himself, that's a regular rule. In this case, Yiftach, he's not a great Torah scholar like regular Jewish leaders are. He's, he's an ignoramus. Pinchas considered him to be an ignoramus. He said he doesn't know Torah. In that case, he needs to come to me. Let him come to me. I'm going to wait for him to come to me. He comes to me and I'll get him off the, I'll get him off the vow. Yiftach said, I'm the head of the Jewish people. I'm the head Kotzin. I'm the head military leader. I'm going to go to a regular commoner. He might be the high priest, but Pinchas is a commoner. I'm, I'm a king. Yiftach said, Pinchas needs to come to me. I'm going to wait for him. He's going to hear the rumors about, you know, the fact that my daughter's in this precarious situation. And he's going to come to me and he'll get me off the situation. And between the both of them waiting for each other to show up, this poor girl was lost in the world. They both got punished. Pinchas lost his Ruch HaKodesh. Pinchas also, as I'm going to mention later on, lost the priestly family from him. It no longer continued through his family. It came back eventually. But for a few generations it was lost. And Yiftach, of course, lost his child, his only child, and also had a really devastating um, death and a really devastating ending. And we'll, we'll talk about that soon. As Yiftach was getting ready to sacrifice, I remember this is all in the first 
the first way the rabbis learned the story. But as Yitzchak was getting to getting ready to sacrifice her, she started crying. And she told her father, I came to greet you with joy. God made an incredible miracle. And I came to, to greet you with so much joy. My father came home alive and Hashem saved the Jewish people from the devastating enemy. And now you're going to slaughter me? And she, she was very wise. She told her father, the verse itself says, when a person brings an animal and then lists all the animals. We have no tradition and no premise for sacrificing a human being. So why are you sacrificing me? And Yiftach didn't get into the halachic discussion with his daughter. He just said, I swore I have to keep it. For Yiftach it was simple. I made a vow. I have to keep this vow. I said, whoever, whatever greets me first, I never imagined it would be you. But at the same time, I've got to see this through because you were the first person to greet me. You came ahead of all the farm animals and now you came to greet me. And Yiftach said, furthermore, if people hear that I didn't keep my vow, they'll stop keeping their vows. Yiftach understood how powerful our words are. And that people, that the breakdown in society that will happen if people just start saying things and don't actually see them through. And Yiftach said, I'm the leader of the Jewish people. They're going to be, everyone's looking at me. And they're going to see how I'm, how I'm behaving. And I'm going to say something. I'm going to say, I plan to do something. And I don't actually see it through. And I use a vow and an oath. It's, it's going to break down society. It's going to give an example and a, and a leniency for people among the Jewish people not to treat their words with, with honor, not to treat their words with respect. Yiftach said, I can't have that happen. People need to know, when you say something, it's golden. It's kept, no matter what. So Yiftach said, I made a vow, I have to see it through. So Yiftach's daughter, again, very, very wise. Yiftach's daughter said, wait a second, you're arguing that you need to keep your vow. I have an example in history where you have a man who swore to give something to God, but it wasn't actually people. And the example he gave, she gave like, wasn't, wasn't like this. When Yaakov ran away from his brother, he had nothing. He was, he was robbed by his nephew. He literally had nothing but a stick. And he turned to God, Yaakov, Jacob, turned to God and said, everything that you give me, I'm going to give tithe. I'm going to give 10% back to you, God. Yaakov then goes to his Uncle Lavan spends decades by him, and when he returns, he's an exceptionally wealthy man, and he gives 10% tithe. But Yiftach's daughter said, wait a second, Yaakov's, Yaakov had not just money, but he had children. He had 12 children, or 11 children. That means one of his children should have been dedicated to God, and yet you don't see anywhere where Yaakov takes his child and slaughters his child. He dedicated 10% of everything that he makes to God, and he never slaughtered one of his children, because, argued Yiftach daughter, there's no premise for human sacrifice. She was absolutely right. And so she argued, she, said, she argued again, and this is, this is a, something that always puzzled me. She said, also Hannah swore to give her child to Hashem. She said, if God, if you give me a child, which was, ended up becoming Shmuel Hanavi, the the author of this book, she said, if you give me a child, I will dedicate this child to God. Shmuel became dedicated to God, and for the rest of his, of his life, he was dedicated to God, but he never was sacrificed by his mother. He was dedicated to God. He lived a godly life. So she asked the father, why are you slaughtering and sacrificing me? Hannah didn't do it, and Yaakov Avino, Jacob didn't do it either. Now, of course, what always puzzles me is that the story of Chan and Shmuel happened way later in history. So, you know, it's a little, it's a little, it's a little interesting that, that that's the proof that she gives to her father when the story hasn't yet happened. Whatever the case was, Yiftach didn't listen. Yiftach told his daughter, I'm going to, there's it, it, great proofs, I'm still going to, I made a vow, I have to keep it. So Yiftach's daughter told her father, 
I want to go down to the mountains. And of course, the, 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 the Medrash says, wait a second, you don't go down to the mountains, you go up to the mountains. Yiftach's daughter told her father, listen, let me go to the Sanhedrin, let me go to, to Ephraim. Ephraim had many great sages. Let me ask them if there's some way that this, to get out of the vows. So she goes to the people of Ephraim and asks the people of Ephraim, is there any way to get us out of the vows? And the people of Ephraim couldn't work it out. Hashem like covered their minds over such an easy law, such a, such a basic principle. Of course, we don't do human sacrifice. And that such a vow is utterly void and has no premise to be kept in the slightest because it makes absolutely no sense. We don't do human sacrifices. And the basic rule is if someone makes a vow going against anything in the Torah, it never is activated as a vow because we already swore to God to keep his laws. So you make a, another vow to break one of the laws. Well, that's fantastic. We already swore to keep the laws, which means the, vow, the second vow, which is breaking any law in Torah, is never activated. But they couldn't work it out. For some reason, Hashem covered over their, their minds. He concealed it from them, and they couldn't work out the law, couldn't work out a way to get Yiftach out of the, the vow. There, are, the, 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 uh, there is a medrash that says that she wanted, the, she wanted to go to the rabbis to spread the word. Like she wanted them to kind of try her, to, to judge her, to make sure that everyone knew that the reason she was getting killed was because her father had made a vow, not because she was guilty in, 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 in any way. Like she wanted to make sure that people didn't start whispering, oh, she must have been a really bad daughter. She must have done something so bad that her father slaughtered her. She said, let me go to the judges. Let them examine me. And, 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 and officially make testimony that I'm an extremely righteous person and that I've not, I haven't done anything immoral, I haven't done anything wrong, and that's the reason my father, my father is killing me, but rather he's doing it because this is the vow that he made. And then she went back home. And according to this, according to the, these, um, the, the Medrash and the Gemara and the Tanah Ve'elio, all of these sources that say that he actually killed his daughter, after that, she came home, Yiftach stood up and slaughtered his daughter and actually brought her as a sacrifice. I mean, it's a shocking story, but this is, this is how so many of the rabbis learn this really, really tragic story. Now, of course, what should have he actually done in this situation? Well, he made a vow. What happens now? So it's actually it's a discussion. Rabbi Yochanan says that he should have paid the monetary value of his, of his daughter to charity. She, she should have worked out her value, and the Torah prescribed how much people are worth, etc. And the, he should have paid that value to charity, and that would have been fully fulfilling, fulfilling his vow, and that would be it. Of course, there's no place in Judaism of human sacrifice. Never, and there's no premise in the sliders. Shimon ben Lakish, Reish Lakish, says nothing. He literally didn't have to do a single thing. He could have come home, seen his daughter, said... Hi, how are you doing? And that was it. There was no, you wouldn't have to give any money to charity because his vow was never activated. He made a vow against something in the Torah. Human sacrifice has no place in Judaism. So, Reish Lakish says he wouldn't have even had to give a charity donation to undo his vow. His vow would have never been activated. That's all the story according to the first way of looking at the story. Now, there is a whole other way of looking at the story, and I find this extremely fascinating, that there's two entirely separate ways of looking at it. The, the 
Second way, they learn in Yiftach's original vow that Yiftach actually had intention that maybe a person would come to the come to the front door to greet him. He never imagined it'd be his daughter. But he did imagine that maybe someone else would come and he would dedicate them to God. So when he said his vow, he said like this. He said, I'm going to dedicate them to God if it's a person. And we'll discuss what that means. And if it's an animal that greets me first, that I'll make as a sacrifice. And what happened was, and, and let, let me just uh, go through the opinions. The Radak, the Rabag, the Abarbanel, the Matsudas, the Ibn Ezra. The Abarbanel mentions both opinions, but it sounds like the Abarbanel, among all the all of the later Rishonim, are all, all swerving to, in this direction that says, Yiftach never sacrificed or slaughtered his daughter, but rather he sanctified her. He said, she's going to be dedicated to Hashem for the rest of, the rest of her life. Now, how does one dedicate someone to God? In the case of Yiftach and Yiftach's daughter, it's still extremely tragic, but it wasn't actually killing his daughter. He dedicated her to live in complete isolation for the rest of her life. He created, he built a house for her in the middle of nowhere, in complete isolation. She never got married. She never saw anyone else anymore. She lived in that house in complete isolation for the rest of her life, aside for four days a year. Now, why why did she have to be dedicated? Because we saw we saw that other people in hum, in, in Jewish history who were dedicated to God. There was never a, never a woman. It was always men that were. And in their case, they did get married. Shmuel Hanavi definitely got married. He famously had two incredibly righteous sons. He was married. He had children. So why Shmuel was dedicated to God and he got married? Why was Yiftach's daughter not dedicated to God? Again, an incredible lesson about the power of of the Jewish woman. A a regular scenario of a woman getting married, her dedication to her family would get in the way of her dedication to God. And therefore, for her to truly be dedicated to God, she had to actually disconnect from the family. Because for a man, the dedication he has towards his family, the, the, the... the center of his life is less about the, about raising the family and less about being dedicated to his family as a woman is. A man is able to be dedicated to God and still get married and it won't be any form of con- conflict. But for Yiftach's daughter to get married, she would owe allegiance to other people because she'd be such a pivotal part of their life, nurturing her children, taking care of her husband. It would be impossible for her to balance both of these, to be fully dedicated to God and to have a family. So in her particular case, she actually, she remained celibate for the rest of her life, which again, completely not in line with, with, with a Torah um, uh, idea. Judaism believes, extremely so, about the greatest purity and the greatest connection to God coming about through connecting to the family. But of course, this was a tragic story with a lot of, a lot of misunderstandings, a lot of mistakes being made along the way. This was not an ideal situation in the slightest. And had Pinchas been involved, this story wouldn't have happened. Pinchas would have straight away undone all of this and said, this is absolutely not in line with Judaism. But this is unfortunately what ended up happening. The Radak even points out, because if you read the words, it does sound a lot more. The words of the verse in, in Shoftim, it does sound a lot more like that Yiftach slaughtered and sacrificed his daughter. But the Radak says, if you look at the words, it says, and Yisra did this that he vowed. It doesn't say he slaughtered her, it doesn't say he sacrificed her. 
the wording in the in the in the Torah is extremely accurate. It would have said he and he and he and he sacrificed it and he slaughtered. It doesn't. It says and he kept fulfilled his deal and he fulfilled his vow. Says the Radak. That's a great. That's the greatest indication that he didn't actually kill her or sacrifice her, but he he sanctified her. He put her in the middle of nowhere in a house and left her alone, and that was it. She was dedicated to God. Now, why did she ask for two months? She wanted to experience. She wanted to go around with her friends and see the world because that was it. After two months, she wasn't going to get a chance. She'd be stuck inside this this building for the rest of her life. And she wanted to mourn with her friends this horrible situation. Yes, she wasn't being killed, but she was never going to get married. She was never going to have a normal life after this. And so she asked her father, just give me two more months before you see your, your vow through. And after the two months, she went into the house. The Abarbanel even suggests that the four days when the women came to came to to comfort her, she only got to see people four days a year. The Abarbanel even suggests they didn't actually see her, but they they gathered around the house and they cried for her. And she would speak to them from outside the house, but, but no one actually saw her. She didn't see. She didn't. She didn't see outside. She was literally in complete isolation. But four days a year, she. Um, she had company for four days a year. The four days correspond, this is very interesting, to the four people who were most or extremely pained by the situation that she was put through. Herself, her father, her mother, and the person she was supposed to marry. Whoever that person was, I guess the, there was no there was no engagement to the best of my knowledge, but there was someone out there that she was supposed to get married to. Everyone has that person out there that they're supposed to get married to. That person suffered greatly because that per- the, she, he never ended up marrying Yiftach's daughter. So four people were very intimately pained by this dreadful situation. And because of that, four days a year, they the, the Jewish daughters, all the Jewish women would gather in this place in the middle of nowhere this hut this house wherever it was in the middle of nowhere and they would all mourn together with her so according to the opinion that Yiftach's daughter was actually killed the four days was dedicated to crying and lamenting over the actual story the tragic story of her death but according to the opinion that she was still alive, they would gather outside the house, like we mentioned earlier on, and just cry together with the, the, about her sad plight, the fact that she's just living alone, all alone for the rest of her life. It was just such a sad situation. Four days a year, all the women would just gather around, and this was, this was a yearly custom that the Jewish people would do. The verse also talks about the Jewish people making a law. The Jews were so devastated. Whatever version of the story you know, um, you want to learn. Both of them are just so unbelievably tragic. And the Jewish people want to make sure that such a thing never occurred again in Jewish history. Whether she was killed, whether she was thrown into isolation for the rest of her life, whatever it was, it was so horrific and so devastating, the Jewish people said, this has to be the last time. So they kind of made a law and made sure everyone was aware of the story to make sure that everyone understood this is not a, this is not a right story. Don't replicate this behavior. It's not good in the slightest. The question is, when were the four days? And there's different opinions, but two of two interesting ones. One opinion says it was the four different head of the years. There's four different days that are dedicated as the Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, for different different um, different things. Whether it's for judgment of water, judgment of humans, judgment of animals, etc., judgment of of of, of uh, the the trees or the 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 crops, etc. The those four days are the days that the the women would all gather by Yiftach Soda. 
one opinion really interestingly says is that they came to console her but also to alleviate her pain because they were worried on such serious days if she would be angry at the rabbis that had let this happen to her and hadn't said anything and hadn't, hadn't stopped this from happening through. It created an incredible amount of damage for the Jewish people. Such a righteous woman that was be so angry at the, at the Jewish people for letting this happen. So they came to kind of comfort her, to alleviate her pain, so she wouldn't like scream out to God and cause um, um, chaos to descend through the Jewish people. Another opinion interestingly says that it was the summer, the summer and winter solstice and the spring and autumn equinox. Those are the days they came to they came to visit her. But that's that's the story of, of Yiftach's daughter. Following the story of Yiftach's daughter, in quick succession, is another extremely tragic story. After Yiftach comes back and he has this really, really horrible story with his daughter. The, a whole tribe from the center of Israel, very close to the other side of the Jordan. Remember, Yiftach lived on the eastern side of the Jordan, outside Israel proper, let's call it. The, the tribe of Ephraim lived right next to them, but on the flip side of the Jordan in Israel proper. And they crossed the border and they came to Yiftach and they were furious. They heard about its incredible victory against the sons of Amin and they told Yiftach, how dare you not invite us to the war? And they told Yiftach, because you never invited us to the war, we're going to burn your house down, and we're going to put you inside the house before we burn it down, essentially burning Yiftach alive. And their claim, as we'll, we'll talk about more of the claims, but the baseline claim was, how come you didn't invite us to the war? You went to war. We're warriors. Where, why, where, was, our invitation? where was our invitation? Straight away, the rabbis point out, the rabbis, the rabbis, the rabbis, point out just how ungrateful these men were. Yiftach had put his, his life in, in jeopardy. He had thrown himself in front of the Jewish people and literally saved them from a really, really bad enemy. And their, their only claim, their claim was, how come we didn't get an invitation? Instead of showing so much gratitude, they, they, they had problems with it. They wanted to kill him. Why? Because we, where was our invitation? What was their official, their official issue with Yiftach? There are many different opinions. I'll just mention a few. They, they said we're brothers. Remember, Yiftach came from Menashe. Ephraim and Menashe were both the sons of Yosef, Joseph. So all the 12 tribes, Yosef's brothers, were all, you know, the, everyone's related to everyone. Everyone's part of the Jewish people. But Yosef had two sons, and they both split up into two separate tribes. They kind of had a, like a closer connection to each other. They were both the sons of Joseph. They both had, you know, descendants of Yosef, of Joseph's royalty. But they had this affinity. They had this connection. And Ephraim said, well, you know, we're, we're so close. You should have called us, not just geographically, but also familiar we're, we're, we're close to family. You should have called us. Where was our invitation? Other people say is that they felt that they were more special. They said, out of the two brothers of the two sons of Yosef, Ephraim was greater than Menashe, even though he was younger. Menashe was the older brother. Ephraim was the younger brother. Ephraim was considered greater. And the tribe overall considered themselves to be greater. I remember, the second leader of the Jewish people, Moshe's disciple, Yeshua, was from the tribe of Ephraim. So they had this, this um, perception of grandeur. And they were very upset that the leader of the Jewish people now came from Menashe. They said, it's going to be a leader from the Jewish people. It's only right that the leadership comes from Ephraim. So they came to, to Yiftach Saf and said, how dare you appoint yourself as leader? We're more suitable to be leaders. And they said, the only fitting punishment is to kill you. The tribe as a whole also felt themselves to be a lot greater of a status. They 
believed, the, these people of Ephraim, or the lesser people of Ephraim, as we'll discuss shortly, they believed themselves that people that were in Israel proper, on the western side of the Jordan, were a higher caliber people. So, firstly, Ephraim said we're greater than Manasseh anyway. But also, we're from Israel proper, and he's the Manasseh people of the eastern side of Jordan, not in Israel proper. So, we're so much greater. And he said, they said further to Yiftach, Yiftach, you're, you're such an embarrassing origin story. Remember, Yiftach's, Yiftach's mother was either a harlot or a concubine or not from the same family. Whatever the case was, a very embarrassing origin story. And they said, this is just deeply offensive that you're the leader of the Jewish people and that you're the one that, that went to war without even calling us. They said, this whole thing is just ridiculous. We need to get rid of you. And one last, one last very strong claim they had on Yiftach is they said... Yiftach had to rely on a miracle to win that war. That war was such an incredible miracle. It was so beyond the pale of, of nature for such a small army to, to defeat such a terrifying empire. And he, they said to him, what business do you have relying on miracles from God? God wants us to work within nature. God doesn't like when we rely on miracles. And they said, we're a very strong nation, a very strong tribe. You should have called us to help you out in the war. That way you would have been relying a lot less on a miracle because you would have had a very strong tribe helping you out. You didn't call us. That means you relied on a massive miracle. That's not good. And so therefore they were furious at, um, the, they were furious at Yiftach, and they said this really insulting line. They said, the most distinguished people from Manasseh are equal to the lowliest people of Ephraim. They kind of said, we're so much better than you, that even our worst people from our tribe are better than the greatest of the tribe of, of Manasseh. And that was a very insulting, a very deeply horrifying thing to say. And that was their official statement that they said, and this is a massive force of warriors from Ephraim crossing the Jordan, coming outside of Yiftach's house and saying, we're going to burn you together with your house down to the ground. Now, this wasn't the first time that Ephraim had, had done this. Earlier on in history, there'd been a leader by the name of Gideon. I'm sure we're going, to, we're going to have a podcast that's going to cover him at some point. And they'd said a similar accusation against Gideon. How come, where was our invite? And Gideon had answered with a lot of humility, even though the accusation was so rude and so inappropriate, Kidon had shown a lot of courtesy to the tribe of Ephraim and then a lot of humility and patience and he'd, he'd humored them. But in Yiftach's case, Yiftach didn't humor them in the size. As you're going to see right now, Yiftach's going to do anything but humor them. He's going to, he's going to go an outright war against them. So what, why not? What happened? So some people say, some people point to the differences between Gidoin and Yiftach in their greatness. And, you know, they point to how great Gidoin was and maybe not how great Yiftach was in comparison. But the Abarbanel says that Yiftach said, as soon as he heard acts of violence and threats of violence and anger, he said, you don't really want to have a conversation. You don't really want, you don't really, you, you, you're here to start a war with me. Okay, you want a war? That's it. So you have to humor them or indulge them in any slight. He just said, okay, you want it, you're trying to attack me? That's not a problem. This is a civil war. So it was very different because they hadn't threatened Gidon the way they had threatened Yiftach. Yiftach saw the, the acts of aggression and he said, okay, well, that, that's, I'm not going to humor you anymore. You're, you're, you're trying to go to war with me. What did Yiftach actually answer them? He said, number one, the reason I didn't invite you to war is because this war was leveled against Gilad. This wasn't really about you. This was about Gilad. So we had no reason to call you. We didn't invite you. We didn't officially invite you to the, to the battle because this, this was something that they, Armin were attacking the city of the section of Gilad. So this was about us. 
Secondly, Yiftach said this, over the years we've begged you to come and no one from Ephraim came. We begged you to come. So you never came any other time. So now you're finally so upset that the final time when we actually went to war, we didn't invite you. We've begged you continuously over 18 years. Please come and help us out. And the third thing is, Yiftach said, we went to war and Hashem made a miracle. You didn't show up all of these all of these years. And now you're suddenly ready to show up for war when it's about attacking us. That's when you're ready to come to help us to help us against the enemy. You were not able to muster your army, but to come against us, that's when you are able to muster your army. So Yiftach was really, really angry, and Yiftach waged a war against Ephraim. All these people that came to to burn him and his house down to the ground, and forty-two thousand men of Ephraim were killed. Now it was the lowly men of Ephraim that were killed, but forty-two thousand men of Ephraim were killed in a civil, a horrifying civil war. And this civil war was—it it, was—it just—it's shocking that this, this, this is what it was over. It was over the, the fact that they weren't invited to war, and Yiftach, Yiftach went to war against them. Yiftach then set up guards along the uh, along the yard, and it sounds like it was only the day of the war. It wasn't something that he continued afterwards. But for during the the, the active war, he set um, guards across across the along the crossings of the Jordan River, and all the men that were fleeing from the war. Now he couldn't know. So many people crossed back and forth from the Jordan. Remember, both sides were controlled by Israel, so it was all just part of Israel. And he needed to know who's from Ephraim, who's from all the other eleven tribes. So they would ask, "Are you from Ephraim?" And the people, of course. If they weren't from Ephraim, they'd say no. And if they were from Ephraim, they knew that their life hung in, in balance. So they, of course, would say no. So the men of Yiftach, Yiftach soldiers, they would ask them and say, say the word Shiboila. Shiboila means stream. The, the rabbis say, not necessarily was it the word, was it the word Shiboila. It could have been any word that had a shin in it, the sh sound. But he, the Shiboilus was a stream. They wanted to cross the stream. So the soldiers would tell these men that wanted to cross and say, Say that I want to go across the Shiboilus. I want to go across the stream. Now, because of the temperament of the air of the hills of Ephraim, that section in Israel, I don't, I don't understand it, but the, the Radak and the Abarbanel, they say that the air of the land of Ephraim somehow affected the speech of the people of Ephraim, and it was very difficult for them to say the word, the, the letter sh, or the sound of sh, when they would pronounce it, they would use the word s. So if they said Siboilus instead of Shiboilus, the soldiers of Yiftach knew straight away that these men were people from Ephraim. And what were they doing here? They're running away from the war. It means they were traitors. They had tried to kill Yiftach and declare war against Yiftach. And so this was their way to know that these men had to be, had to be killed. And so these people trying to escape the war were were cut down by the by the Jordan River by the soldiers of of Yiftach just with a simple um, audible test, literally just seeing if they could say shut instead of or if they said shut instead, and that was the way for them to know whether where, who was who and who was an who was an enemy and who was a friend. Some people actually say that the men of Ephraim what spurred them to come to attack Yiftach? They were so upset about the story. They heard what Yiftach had done to his daughter, regardless of which version it was, whether he had killed her or whether he had put her in complete isolation. Both of them were just so horrific. And they came and said, what type of leader does this? What type of person behaves like this? And they said, we're, we're disgusted. So they declared war on Yiftach. And Yiftach said, okay, you want to go to war? And he had incredible support. He just saved the Jewish people from the hands of Amman. So he had incredible support. What's really sad is, Tana Dveliyo, 
says the, the blame for both stories both lie at the feet of Pinchas. Pinchas was the Jewish leader. Pinchas was the high priest. Pinchas was the son of Elazar, the son of Aaron, the first priest of the Jewish people, the high, the Kayan Gadol. Pinchas was such a special and righteous man, and he could have prevented both stories. He could have gone to Yiftach and got and annulled the vow in a second. This, there was no halachic, there was no Torah standing for this vow in the slightest. Yiftach was absolutely not supposed to see this vow through. And Pinchas could have showed up and stopped it. And number two, he could have shown up and screamed at the men of Ephraim who came to Pinchas, Yiftach's house. He could have told them, Yiftach's daughter came to you trying to find a way out of the vow and you weren't able to help. And now you're coming to scream at Yiftach for not having an invitation. Pinchas could have screamed at these men and said, go back home. What are you starting up with Yiftach for? But Pinchas didn't. And because he didn't, and he was, the lead, and he was such an important leader of the Jewish people, the blame of this lay at Yiftach's, Yiftach's feet, and, Yiftach was, and, and, and Pinchas's feet, I apologize. Pinchas was the kind God that he could have avoided both of these dreadful scenarios. And because he, he lay back and said, well, I'm not going to get involved, such tragic events took place, whether it was the, the, the death or the isolation of Yiftach's daughter, or the, or the, the civil war with 42,000 men of Ephraim getting killed. Yift, uh, Pinchas was punished. The 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 Gemara and the Medrash brings proof that the Ruach the the divine spirit of Hashem that lay with Pinchas for so many years, hundreds of years. At some point, it left him, and that was that was that as a result of his, of his inactivity, his ability to help and not helping, and also the high the high priest family. Pinchas was the son of Elazar, the third son of Aaron. The first two sons of Aaron died in the, in the desert. But the third and fourth son survived. And Elazar and his brother Itamar both became priests. Elazar, being the older of the, of the two surviving sons, became the high priest. And his son, Pinchas, became the next high priest. But after Pinchas, it didn't stay in Pinchas' family. But rather, it went to a descendant of the fourth son of Aaron. It went to Itamar's descendant, who was Eli Hakoyin, the very famous the very famous high priest during the time of Shmuel, and we'll probably have a podcast dedicated to him as well. And for, for many generations, it stayed in Eli's family, and this was as a response to Pinchas's behavior in this story. Hashem wasn't happy, eventually ended up going back to this. Eli's sons sinned, and after that story, it was decreed that it would go back to Pinchas's family, and later on, during the, the end of the reign of King David and King Sh- David HaMalach and Shleim HaMalach, it ended up going back to Pinchas's family. But for, for a measure of time, Pinchas lost that his family would be the high priest. For six more years, Pin- Yiftach was the ruler of the Jewish people. But something really tragic, as a response of, of his part of the whole tragic story with his daughter, Yiftach's body parts started falling off. It was, it's devastating. It's such a horrific punishment. He got some form of boils that started just eating away at his skin and his actual limbs started falling off. And every place where he went, if his limb fell off, according to law, you need to bury it. But he would bury it instead of bringing it to one collective burial place. Wherever it fell off, wherever that particular limb fell off, he would bury it at that spot. Why did he want to do that? He wanted to do it because he didn't have any children. That his only daughter, whether she remained celibate, 
unmarried for the rest of her life, or whether she was actually killed. No descendants were going to come from Yiftach, and Yiftach knew that. And Yiftach wasn't about preserving his legacy, but he wanted the miracle to be preserved. He wanted the Jewish people to remember for all of history that God had done this tremendous miracle and saved them from the hands of this wicked empire, Amin. And so he said... No one's going to remember because I'm not going to have any descendants. They're going to go around reminding people. But he said, if I have lots of burial spots, people are going to cross my burial spot, whether it's on, on in one city of Gilad or another city of Gilad. And as they come to different burial spots, they're going to remember me. And they're going to remember the incredible miracle that God did. And that was extremely important to Yiftach. He wanted people to remember the miracle that God did to the Jewish people. And so when, when a limb would fall off, instead of collecting all the limbs in one place and putting it in the same place where he eventually would be buried six years later, he said, bury it here and make a marker here so people know this is where Yiftach was buried. And that way, there'll be lots of different places where people will be able to remember the miracle. The Chidor writes like this, in the name of the Arizal. He says that Yiftach was a reincarnation, a Gilgul of Zimri. Zimri was the chieftain of the tribe of Shimon, who had done a really horrible sin with, with a, a Midianite princess. And the daughter was that princess. Yiftach's daughter was a reincarnation of Cosby of that of that person that they had that the tri- tribal le- leader of Shimon had behaved inappropriately with. They both had behaved immor- immorally, and who had killed them? Pinchas had killed them. Pinchas had taken a spear and put it through both of them, killing them both. And now they were both reincarnated, one as Yiftach and one as Yiftach's daughter. And what's really interesting is when Yiftach comes back from the war and sees his daughter and understands the ramifications, he says something really interesting. He says, Fall, he says at one time, talking about the fact that he's going to fall. And he says, again, you have caused me to fall. He says it twice. He tells his daughter, this is the second time that, I, that I've been caused to, to fall on your account. The first time in um, the story of when I was a chieftain of Shimon, the, the leader of the tribe of Shimon. And now, again, because I'm going to see this vow through, I was obviously going to be a punishment that's going to come my way. And there you go, I've fallen another time. What's really interesting is, though, the daughter was reincarnated a third time. And this time, it was many years later, to a famous rabbi by the name of Rabbi Hanania ben Tradyon. Rabbi Hanania ben Tradyon was, was, was burnt alive. It was a horrifying story. It was during the Roman um, conquests, or the Roman um, occupation of Israel, um, after the times of the destruction of the temple. And they brutally killed Rabbi Hanania ben Tradyon. And they ended up capturing his daughter and put her in an extremely precarious situation where she was very easily um, placed in the, in the way of sin. And she managed to keep herself guarded from sin. And in the merit of this third time actually being able to avoid it all, Rabbi Meir, a famous rabbi that lived at the time, ended up saving her. Rabbi Meir was his sister-in-law. Rabbi Meir had married a different sister, a different daughter of Hanani ben Trajan. And he famously, in an incredible story, goes and saves this girl who was the reincarnation of Yiftach's daughter. One final note. The Gemara in Rosh Hashanah talks about, you know, people that talk about leaders. And they say, you know, the, this leader, you know, I'm not so sure how great they are. The earlier generations, they were much better. But I'm not really going to listen to this leader because this leader is from a later generation. All this type of attitude, dismissing leaders of, of one's time and talking about the greatness of other leaders. And the Gemara says... Famously, that Yiftach in his generation was like Shmuel in his generation. Shmuel was considered the greatest of the judges, such an incredible, the, such an, the father of the prophets, such an incredible and righteous and perfect person. And the rabbis say Yiftach in his generation was like Shmuel in his generation. Don't judge 
leaders, you know, on a scale, every leader is, is, is fitted for that generation. And every person, once they're appointed as a leader of that generation, needs to be listened to regardless of how great you believe them to be or how they compare or line up with later or earlier generations. Each leader, once they're appointed as the leader of that generation, need to be respected and need to be cherished and, and honored and listened to.